Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at Audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today has already been on the podcast once episode number 157 and his name is brian slagle He's the founder and CEO of Metal Blade Records. This dude is a complete legend. Last time he came on, it was to promote his book for the sake of heaviness. But it's been a few years, and I wanted to talk to him again. I mean, this is the dude who started Metal Blade in the early 80s in his garage and basically helped discover Slayer and Metallica. And if you don't know Metal Blade, well, you've been living under a rock because they're home to some of the biggest names in metal, such as Amana Marth, Behemoth, The Black Dahlia Murder, Cannibal Corpse, Gore, and countless others. I'll stop talking. I welcome Brian Slagle back to the URM podcast. Brian Slagle, welcome back to the URM podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm just curious, how is life at Metal Blade during all this, and how is life for you? <laughs> Interesting, as it is with everybody, I think. I'm sure. Surprisingly, uh, you know, Metal Blade's doing okay. We were, obviously everybody was unsure as to what was going to happen when going into all this stuff. Uh, and we were really concerned about our European operation because they shut down everything. Uh, our, uh, we're associated with Sony in Europe and our plant is in, uh, is in northern France next to Spain and Italy and all that stuff. Oof. So we were shut down completely for about a month with zero sales, which was not good. But the German government did help us out quite a bit. And then once things open back up again over there, sales have skyrocketed. And, you know, in Europe, it's predominantly physical still. So it's interesting that, uh, that it's, it's done so well. And, you know, we're hanging in there in the States, too. Uh, you know, we're doing what we can. I mean, we're lucky that we have a, an extensive catalog. So that helps us with the uh, streaming stuff. And we're also doing a lot of reissues and vinyl and anything we can on, on catalog stuff. So, um, so we're, hang, we're hanging in there. Obviously, very concerned about the bands. Uh, you know, they're not able to tour or or anything. Obviously, until at least the early part of 2021, and who knows beyond that. So we're, you know, we're doing what we can to help them out, and uh, you know, trying to get them, you know, doing stuff so we can sell their merchandise. And but we're, you know, we're hanging in there as, as best as we all can. Are you finding that you kind of need to help manage their um, mental state more than usual? Yeah, some of them for sure. You have know, talked to everybody. I mean, I think for the most part, most of them are doing pretty well. But, but I've definitely had a couple friends and artists who are are uh, especially those on the East Coast in the New York area where it was really yeah. terrible. Uh, yeah, they're they're definitely struggling for sure. But uh, so I've played uh, a dime store psychologist a few times. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because once this hit. I kind of went into overdrive on podcasts and started doing them three or four times a week as opposed to once. And so I've talked to a lot of people since March and I've noticed that there's two camps. There's the one camp that are being totally entrepreneurial. Like this is an opportunity. It changed my plans, but I'm going to make new plans and make the best of it. So there's that category of artists and producers. And then I'm noticing this other category where it's doomsday. And I feel like there's seems to be no middle ground between it. But I've noticed that even though 
it is true that this sucks for everybody equally. The ones that are kind of confronting it head on are te- they're doing pretty okay overall, especially mixers. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, certainly. Look, everybody's in the studio recording now because they don't have anything else to do. So yeah, the, the, that sort of stuff I know is uh, people who do producers and engineers and mixers are all doing pretty well now. And you know, it depends on the bands. I mean, we we're pretty lucky on some of our larger bands. They uh, some of the main guys have significant others that are luckily still employed. So that's a, a big help for them. That helps. So kind of back to the local days. Yeah. Right. And then. Uh, you know, there's a couple bands that, in all honesty, have been working for a long, long time nonstop, and they're just using this as like, wow, we actually get to have a, a, a real break and just kind of chill out and relax for a little while. So, um, you know, everybody's hanging in there. It's, it's. Uh, I think the biggest problem that, that all of us face is just the uncertainty of, you know, when uh, things are going to get back to somewhat normal, especially in the concert world, because we, there's really no... Uh, there's no clue on that and, and how that's going to happen. Who's going to be the promoters? What, what are going to be the venues? You know, all that stuff. Do you have a prediction? I wish I did. I'm concerned. Uh, I'm especially concerned for uh, independent venues, which are struggling mightily and, and a lot have already gone under. I think there's a prevailing hope between, you know, a lot of people I talk to in the business that as far as the, the live shows go, that we're hopeful that we might see the return of local promoters or regional promoters, which we saw in the 90s. So, you know, in the, in the Northeast, you'd have a, a, an independent promoter that's, you know, doing shows and having, uh, promoting them at, at, at his smaller venues and stuff or her smaller venues. So we'll see. I mean, that, that's what we're hoping, but it, it, it's, just, it's so hard to tell at this point. What do you think of uh, these ideas like the Herd Immunity Fest where you know what I'm talking about? That a bunch of, it's like a bunch of new metal bands basically are playing a festival, I think in Wisconsin next week or something. Have you heard about that? Yeah. I'm wondering though, cause, cause there's been a few of those, you know, Sturgis, for example, uh, where they were going to do some of these things and then they just don't ever happen or they fizzle out or, you know, it's, it's difficult to do any of that stuff. Even the streaming stuff is, is crazy. So I don't know. And until we see something happen and, and yeah. how it works, we'll see. Yeah. I wouldn't feel comfortable going to one of those shows. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people right now on any level of any, you know, sporting events, anything of, of, of a large scale is a little scary. Cause if you, you know, I mean, there's a million different, you know, research on this thing and all this stuff. But one thing that a lot of the doctors tend to agree is that it's, it's not easily transferable for the most part, but they're finding that there are super, <laughs> super people, I guess they call them, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that can transmit this to many people. So clearly, if you have a large crowd, the odds of that happening are, are, are pretty bad. So I think, yeah, I think anybody's a little, a little freaked out about being in a large crowd at the at the present time. Yeah. I, I'm not even, I'm not even a, into being in a small crowd at the present time. Yeah. Right. I think, yeah, I think most, I think that's pretty much everybody's vibe at this point. Stay away. I would hope so. What about release schedules? I remember that when this first started, some bands and movies too delayed their releases, like the bond movie got pushed. It was going to come out like I think the 8th of April, we got moved to November. The Christopher Nolan movie got moved back. I realize we're in a different industry, but I know that some album releases got pushed back and then some went forward. And uh, bands that typically do a lot better didn't do as well. And I know that the theory is that nobody was interested in buying records at that point in time. It's not like those bands suddenly lost 75% of their popularity overnight. Have you guys delayed your release schedules at all, or has that played in? A little bit. We had, so right when everything started shutting down, we had a Black Dollar Murder record coming out. And we really couldn't stop it because everything was pretty much set in motion. It's too late. Yeah, too late. And the band wanted to put it out. So it, it did pretty well. The, uh, the D2C did pretty much what we did on the last one, which were really big numbers. The overall numbers were certainly down just because of the, the climate, but their chart numbers were, were huge. So, uh, and it also, I was talking to Trevor, lead singer from Black Dahlia, uh, and he was saying, you know, 
in a weird way, it wasn't bad on, on a couple levels where he had so much time to do press because normally you're, you know, you're running around, you're getting a tour together, you're doing all this. Mm-hmm. Things. He had nothing to do but sit at home and do press. So he did a ton of press and a lot of things. So whereas, you know, maybe, you know, the numbers on that record weren't what they were normally, but they were, they were pretty close. But I think just the the overall branding of the situation and kind of the way they took advantage of, of, of it, hopefully in the long run, will help them. And we put out a few other things that did surprisingly well, too, uh, especially like chart numbers in Germany. We put out like an Igor record and a Sirith Ungol record. I mean, nothing huge, but some you know bands that have a, a little bit of a name. And all those records did actually really, really well. So we've done some reissues. Like I said, we did a bunch of Marshall Fate reissues and King Diamond stuff that did really well. But we did have to delay a few things. We had of a Fate's Warning, Six Feet Under, and uh, Armored Saint albums coming out, all of which we delayed. Uh, they were going to be out, you know, summertime-ish, uh, and we moved them to the fall. But those aren't too effective in terms of touring because those bands don't do a lot of touring. Yeah. So we kind of felt comfortable doing that. But there's a couple other bands that we're trying to get records out in, in 2020 that clearly they just, they, they can't because they, they, the tour component is too big a part of it. So that's all moved to the next year, which is going to be crazy. I could see how black Dahlia murder could release a record and still do fine in this time period. They have that audience and that, that credibility. Oh, sorry. And it was early too. It was, it was, I think in March. So it was kind of before things got spread out too long and everything else. So it's, uh, it did. Okay. Can we talk about Igor for a second? Sure. Man, first of all, how did you guys find that? And second of all, I think that's the most inventive stuff I've heard since Mr. Bungle in the 90s. It's insane. Yeah, so they're kind of part of this uh, interesting scene called uh, called Synthwave. And they're not particularly really into that, but that's kind of this bands like Perturbator and Dance with the Dead uh, who are super cool. And it's, it's just this mixture of electronic EDM style with, with metal. And Igor is a little bit different because they have some of that. And, and the guy, the main guy in the band is a, is a DJ, but they have a, a, an actual you know, band, so to speak. And they're doing some really interesting things. And you know, it's so different that you don't know. When you do something that different, you're not really sure what the response is going to be. It could go anywhere from people thinking it's really cool to a lot of people saying, oh, well, I'm not into this. But we found or with, both or both. But we found with that band almost universally that the response was incredible. Uh, I was even quite honestly blown away by, by how positive it was, uh, especially in the in the metal community. And um, and they've gone on and, and done a, a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, another stamp of approval. Uh, Corpse Grinder sang uh, yep. track on the new record, which that was so cool. Certainly helped, and it was incredible. I never would have thought something that that would really work as well as it did, but it, it was great. He had a great time doing it. And yeah, they're a really interesting band because, you know, you, it's so hard these days to find things that are unique and different, but they're definitely doing something very unique and very different. And the uh, response so far has been, been awesome. So we're, we're super happy with them. Man, what I loved about that course grinder track too, was the guitars weren't even like full out high gain, yeah. heavy ass guitars. It was almost like a rock tone but it was still just insanely heavy. Yeah, it, it worked. It really worked, and it was just uh, such a cool thing. So yeah, they're they're a fun band. But they're, another record that kind of came out in the middle in the beginning of all this stuff. But it, it did really well. And now, I think the hard part is trying to keep people uh, getting their attention still with with everything else going on. Obviously, how do you come across something like that and say, "I think I'm going to give this a shot"? Because I mean, you got the whole the business side to consider as well. And that's pure art. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we had it, uh, you know, the staff actually found, found that band and brought it to me and, and they were really into, into it. There was a really great underground buzz. Uh, the guy in the band was really cool, really wanted to be on metal blade. So I was like, yeah, let's take a shot. It's interesting. And, and, uh, you know, I, I love taking risks. I love signing bands that you would never think that we would sign. We've kind of done a lot of that over the years, trying to, to, and the boundaries of, of metal, I guess. Uh, so I was into it, and, but I was also a little unsure of what the reaction was going to be. Like I mentioned earlier, but it's been it's been incredible so far. So, uh, so yeah, that was our uh, our staff did a great job flushing that one out. You know what I think it is. Lots of times when you get an artist that's that heavily into electronic, when they start mixing metal, the metal is kind of 
almost like an afterthought. Whereas in Igor's case, it's definitely not an afterthought. It's legit metal combined with legit electronics and whatever the hell else gets thrown in there. But it's all legit. That's the thing about it. That's kind of why I compare it to Mr. Bungle because whenever they blended styles, everything was done exactly right for the style. Whereas a lot of bands that blend styles, they kind of half-ass things here and there. Like they'll be really good at the metal part and then they'll throw in like a Aladdin part, but it'll be a half-ass Aladdin part. But Bungle, everything was 100% legit. And with Igor, I'm hearing everything 100% legit, which is why I think that every single person I know who's heard it, whether or not it's their style of music, they think it's incredible. And the videos too. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, that they're, I mean, that guy's a real artist and he's, you know, got an amazing background of influences of music that he's really into. And yeah, that, that whole thing works really well. So uh, that's, a, that's a fun one for sure. And their live experience too is really cool too. What's the story with the videos? Because those seem high dollar high concept uh definitely high concept but but they you know we, we found uh and they've got some guys that they work with that are able to do this for pretty inexpensive so they're not uh they're not super expensive videos because you know you find a lot of like-minded art people that especially we we've done this with videos over the course of time and we, we had you know the first video that um the guy that did 300 the movie 300 it was a lizzie borden video we've had other mm-hmm. video directors who you know they're kind of way into uh movies and tv is, is through music video so you see a lot of that okay me and uh my director of marketing were looking at that and we were like this is not just a friend of theirs with a video camera like whoever's working on this knows exactly what they're doing and is probably doing it because he or she loves the loves the music because that's not not even close to amateur or like you know sometimes metal videos aren't like the highest quality videos this is this is as good as anything you would see out of a pop high dollar video so we figured there was there was some sort of a seriously pro crew on that Yep, and the, and the people doing it uh, are super into it. So that all, all that stuff helps. You know, anytime people are really into what they're doing, it's going to show. I think art wise, it's impressive, man. On that topic, I don't know if we talked about this before, but this is something that always comes up, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. But I have to ask: uh, when you're looking for a band, how normal is it for it to just like show up on the doorstep? and you're good to go as opposed to getting filtered through trusted sources. Yeah. So it's changed a lot over the years, obviously. Um, I would say, you know, even back to the early days, you know, 99% of the bands we signed usually come from somebody, obviously in the first, in the first few, three years, people are just sending me tapes. Uh, when I was doing it myself and I was just listening to everything and we were signing stuff from that. But since then it really comes to, there's so many bands out there and so many different ways to get it. Rarely if would somebody, you know, would give me a demo at a show or, you know, just cold send it in that we would work with it. Most of the time, and this is what I tell bands now too, it's like if you want to get signed or you want to get noticed or even just get get an audience. Where we find out about bands are from local promoters, uh, people who do podcasts, uh, people who do magazines, uh, radio, any of anything that's within the industry usually is how we, we find out about bands. Somebody we know in whatever, you know, whatever city it is around the world, we'll, we'll hear a band and, and we know them because we work with them on whatever level, record store, it could be anything. And they'll say, hey, you should check out this band. And that's kind of, that's really where we hear stuff. And then once we do, somebody in the company checks it out and then it kind of goes, everybody listens to it and everybody's into it. It lands on my desk and uh, I'll say kind of yay or nay. So that's more or less the process. It's been that way for quite a while now. The reason I'm bringing this up is that even though it's been brought up a lot, we we have a lot of new listeners and a lot of younger people who may not know this already. And the evidence I have is just from watching our online communities and then also still getting hit up all the time to check out people's music. And when I get the chance, I try to tell them that that's not the way to go about it, that every single, just about every single band I've ever worked with, had on Nail the Mix, known, they got noticed 
because of what they were doing on their own first. That's There's a couple outliers for sure, but that's generally, if there was to be like a, a set path, I think that would be the path. Yeah, 100%. And it's been that way for, for a long time. I mean, it, it has to happen. I think if it's going to happen, it has to happen organ- as organically as possible. And that's usually the most successful bands are. And that's, you just kind of come from the ground up. And because it used to be that there was, you know, LA had a scene or San Francisco had a scene or Sweden had a scene or whatever it was. But those sort of things kind of in the new world don't really exist anymore. You know, bands are coming from everywhere and there's not really a, a specific area that has a scene anymore. So that's why it's even more important to organically do things. And, and like you mentioned, you know, just, just have somebody wherever you're at get into it somehow. My theory as to why there aren't scenes, I mean, there's a number of factors. I've thought about this is that back in the day, it was virtually impossible to have a band with people outside of uh, your immediate area. Whereas, and I remember that, you know, when I was trying to get my band together, it was close to impossible to find anybody good enough in Atlanta. So I had to, like, I had to get Kevin Talley from Maryland. I had to get Emil from Alabama. Like I... I had to kind of do what people just do normally now. But I think because of that, because so many bands have people from so many different geographical areas, it doesn't, it doesn't come together into a scene like, you know, the Bay area where people are just swapping in and out of bands, always playing with each other. Like dudes have been in like three of the, famous bands and you don't see that anymore i think for that reason yeah and the internet too you know you have the yep. internet and and the availability to find people from other other parts of the world to be in a band before it's just if you're in la you just had to find the, the best players in la and for a weird way it, i think that worked for a while because what would eventually happen in a lot of these cities were the best players would end up finally in the same band and that would make them really good the cream rises to the top kind of thing yeah now a lot of times you'll find there'll be one really great guy in a band and then the rest of the guys aren't all that good. So it's <laughs> yep. a little tricky sometimes. Since you don't have scenes to look at, I guess that makes it that much more important to have the staff and other people filter it through because you can't just say, all right, let's look at LA. What are the, the top drawing bands in LA or the bands that have the most going on? It's so spread out. Yeah, it, and it's it's a worldwide thing now. I mean, it's just bands from from everywhere. So uh, yeah, it's and we just don't physically have time to listen to everything that you know. Even you know, we try to listen to everything that that people turn us on to, but it's it's difficult. Usually, if it comes from a couple different people or some a trusted source somewhere, and said, "Hey, you know, we heard about this band from somewhere. You guys should check it out." Then uh, that's what we try to do. So you know how investors will often say that they're not investing in a company, they're investing in the founder? That's kind of a common thing I've heard from a lot of venture capitalists and people who do that sort of thing. It's less about whether or not that one company is going to take off because it's anybody's guess and more because they believe that that person is going to do something amazing at some point. Do you kind of look at it that way? Like what level... How much is it what this band is doing now versus what you think the brains in the band will be able to do in the future? Well, I mean, it's a little bit different for me because uh, it's twofold. Number one, people ask, ask me, what do you look for in a band? It really, there's, I, there isn't anything I can say. It's just if I listen to something, I like it. And it's, just mm-hmm. a gut, it's a gut feeling there. That being said, you do have to talk to the people in the band and make sure they're cool and that they, you know, have the right head on their shoulders and they're in, into it for all the right reasons. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think we, if we, if we hear something that we really like, unless you know we talk to the band and they're really not together, <laughs> we would work with them. But you want to have that, you know, that that balance of, of working with with good people because we're really lucky right now with between, you know, the staff that we have and all the bands we have. Everybody gets along. The managers. It's a really good situation now where. It took a long time to, to, to build this. And I think even just in the metal community, it took a long time to get there. But now everything's really good. And we, you know, you don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak, by working with a, a difficult artist. But there's very few of those these days. But every once in a while, you'll come across somebody that, you know, you like what they're doing. And you'll talk to guys in the band and be like, ah, they might not have the right perspective on things. I've heard a lot. And I want to know if you think this is true, that, you know, back in the 80s, people tolerated 
much more bullshit because there was a lot more money to be made. So basically they were making enough money to put up with uh, oversized egos. But then again, when I talk to people who were around back then and they talk about the bands that were doing great, they always, even if they were nuts, they always had the right kind of vision and the right kind of band members. Do you think that that's a myth or true that people will tolerate less bullshit now than before? I think it's a couple things. I think that bands know and, and people know a little bit more how to, how to act. It's become more of a business, so you can't get away with being a you know, crazy partier or just difficult to deal with because eventually people will not want to deal with you. So I think that's a lot less now than it was back then. And I just think it was just, you know, bands and, and the scene growing up, you know, some people just, uh, you know, had certain attitudes about things and, and they, they felt that they were going to, they were deservedly going to be where they were. Some, some of it worked out, some of it didn't. Uh, we personally, I, I personally never really we had the opportunity a few times to, to work with some bands that I knew were, were going to be uh, uh, difficult. <laughs> so I learned early on that that's not really, it's a kind of a waste of, of everybody's time. So we kind of let some of those bands uh, go somewhere else just because it's, the, for me personally, the headache's not worth it. Now, other people, I mean, I talk to managers and labels all the time who, who actually like to work with that sort of stuff. It's, it's a challenge for them and, and they really like the artists. So, you know, to each his own. But it's way less now than it was back then, that's for sure. I call it the stress to money ratio. Like, at what point is the stress not worth the money of dealing with a, with a certain situation? 100%. I was reading a book about narcissism, a couple books about it lately. Just, I got curious about the topic. It was saying that there's a healthy amount that, an artist or anybody successful needs because they need to be confident enough to be able to put their stuff out there. Then at the same time, it goes too far. It becomes a, you know, a mental illness. It's pathological and needs serious treatment. And it's kind of a spectrum like anything else, but it's an interesting balance from what I read. Where do you think it is? What do you think the sweet spot is for an artist being confident, but not feeling entitled? That's a difficult one. I, I think for the most part, and this isn't just bands that we work with, I think this is in the metal scene. I mean, everybody here is really into the music and, and we all kind of grew up watching these bands from the 70s and 80s that we loved. And, you know, most of them start out as fans and, and continue to remain fans. So that keep, I think that keeps people's feet on the ground a little bit more than, than it, it used to be. But there is, you know, there is that fine line. I, I, I've read one thing I did early on when I was, you know, learning how to how to, to run a label, I guess, and deal with people was I, I couldn't understand why why some people would react a certain way to a certain situation. So I, I what do you mean? Well, just you know, you, you would have you know, talk to a band and say, hey, you know, what about this or that, and they would have a really weird view of, of what they wanted to do, and they and there was always a lot of friction sometimes in between bands. And so I read a lot of psychological books just to kind of deal with like, okay, if this situation is happening and this person is reacting to it this way, why, why is that? And how can you kind of guide it to where it needs to be? And that was really helpful for me because, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, look, I mean, look, in all honesty, a lot of metal kids come from not the best backgrounds. So you've got some, and, and this is the outlet that, that clearly makes them all part of the family that we are. But uh, I learned a lot from that. And narcissism is a big part of that, too. And, and you're right. You, know, you have to have the confidence to do it, but you also still have to remain you know, with your feet on the ground as much as possible. Uh, and I, I think for the most part, like I said, it's that way now. I can't think of too many artists that, uh, in the metal world now that are too out of control on that. Was that a huge learning curve for you uh, when you decided that I got to figure this shit out because... These fuckers are crazy. Oh, massively. And, and even just in business, because, you know, you, you're dealing with people in business and not really understanding why they're reacting or why they're doing things in a certain way. And, 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 and getting, you know, some sort of knowledge about that stuff was really helpful because then you understand why people are acting and reacting the way they are. And it makes it, like I said, it makes it a lot easier for you to figure out what's going on than before. It's like, well, what do you mean you're not going to do that tour? That tour is the best tour you, you could you can ask for what are you talking about? And then you kind of figure out, oh, okay, now I see why <laughs> it's a lot to do. And I remember one thing that 
used to come up a lot was when I was producing and even when I was in my band, I was helping people get placed in bands. Like for instance, a, a band will lose a lead guitar player and just because I know a lot of great lead guitar players, they'd come to me and would ask if I knew anybody who could leave a local band or something. You know, like for instance, uh, like I helped Ryan Knight get into Arsis and then, you know, as you know, he went on to Black Dahlia. There's lots of examples like that where uh, I introduced a band to somebody who was, in, who was too good to be in a local band. But something that came up often, often enough for me to mention it, was that most of the time the dudes in the local bands didn't go for it because they were too scared to disappoint their friends. And that, that blew my mind. I could not like that. That was one of the reasons I started reading about this stuff too. Cause it just did not make sense to me that, man, you were, you practice eight hours a day. You have been for like 10 years. You're incredible. You want to do this for real. I just got you a gig with a band that's doing it for real. And it's on, nuclear blast or metal blade or something like that. And you're turning it down because you want, you don't want to disappoint your high school friends. That's craziness. Yeah. We see a lot of that. And that's, I think one reason you don't see more bands become more successful quickly because it, it, there's a point in time where, you, you know, you, if you're in a band and you start out and you get a little bit of success, you kind of have to make that commitment to, uh, I want to do this. I, I want to, you know, I want to go out and tour. I, I don't care if I have to sleep on somebody's floors. And back in the 80s, in the early 80s, when this all this started, you know, when, you know, I was starting out or, you know, Metallica or Slayer, or, you know, on and on and on, we all just loved the music. And we, you, you kind of just didn't care about anything other than your love of the music. And, and we just wanted to do this because we love the music so much. And everything else, you know, forget girlfriends, forget family, forget your high school friends, forget anything. You, you just have these, this, you know, laser focus on, on what you want to do because you love the music so much. And now, Obviously, you've got the internet and a lot of other stuff out there, but now I think a lot of bands lose that focus or they get they get pulled in a lot of different directions because there's so many different things you see and you hear that you just don't have that that laser focus and drive that a lot of us had back in the 80s, which is, you know, again, one re one of the bigger reasons why I think that the scene as big and as as well as it's doing hasn't gone farther than it could potentially. Actually, was reading Duff McKagan's book, it brought up something really, really similar that I remember from a Slipknot documentary that came out like 15 years ago. Have you read Duff's book? Yeah, it's great. So you know how he's talking about how they kicked out a couple members because they just were more comfortable at home. And uh, no matter how nuts their lifestyle was, everybody was in it for the same exact reasons. It's Crazy enough that they gelled musically, but even crazier that five people with the exact same goal found each other. And then I remember watching that Slipknot documentary from 2005 or 2004, where they were talking about what what was different about them than the other bands. And they said that uh, nobody in the band wanted to be that guy that let everybody else down. So I was thinking crazy enough that this band is awesome because that's already rare. But then that's like the lottery finding nine people that are on the same page. Like how insane is that? And I think that that's, that right there is part of why it's so crazy to try and make it as a band is not just the music. It's finding people in that headspace. Oh, a thousand percent. Cause to really be successful, you've got to have, all the band members on the same page and going in the right direction. The management, the label, the lawyers, the booking agent, everybody's got to be on the same page. I'll, I always make this analogy of it's like a car with four wheels. If all four wheels are going in the same direction. <laughs> Dude, that's what you guys told me when you did sign my band. Is I remember that. Yeah, you're going to go I fast. agreed. And, and if not, it's not. I mean, it's pretty simple. And people go, oh, okay, I, I get it now. But yeah, you're right. You, you guys were right, by the way. But yeah, and you're right about that too. There's so many factors that have to happen to be a successful band. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how sometimes it happens. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. 
You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. When you start to see, like, say you have a band that you've been working with and you start to notice things that maybe they don't notice internally or or they notice, but they don't want to talk about it. Like, for instance, two of the members are starting to be a drag. At what point do you feel comfortable getting involved? Like, if you feel like this is going to derail this project? I mean, I'm usually pretty honest about stuff, and I'll give my opinion pretty, uh, pretty bluntly when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, it depends on, on the situation of the band, if they have management and all that sort of stuff, because the first thing you would want to do is go to the manager and say, like, hey, uh, are you aware of this? And sometimes the manager even comes to you and say, hey, I want you guys to be aware of this. And then we'll kind of talk about a, a plan. But it's usually pretty simple. You just, you know, you just sit down with everybody. And, you know, as long as these guys are, uh, are in the right spot, you know, you can usually figure that stuff out. It's happened a few. It doesn't happen that often, luckily, uh, but it does happen a few times. I think the, the bigger problem that we see is once a band starts to, to get to happen or, you know, starts, starts doing well, is again that commitment to, to to the band, and we've seen this a few times over the years where you know one of the guys in the band, you'll have a band that's really great, and one guy that drummer, the band, oh, it doesn't matter who it is, but one of them will be like, ah, you know, I don't know, my girlfriend says she doesn't want me on the road all the time, or my parents say I need to go to school, and you know what I, what I try to tell her because I've seen this happen millions of, well, not millions, but many times over the a years. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, you'll see a guy and he'll just, he'll, he'll bow out because it's like, Oh, I got to do this or that. And in, inevitably you'll see them again. Sometimes and that was the biggest mistake I ever made. And I try to encourage them just go for it. I mean, you've got a little window here of a couple of years where you should, you have this opportunity. You should go for it. If it doesn't work out, you can always go back to school. You can always go back to, to something else, but you're not going to have this opportunity ever again. So you should really, really go after it. And most of the time it'll work, especially if, if uh, the circumstances around the band are good. What I've noticed too in those scenarios where they leave over a girlfriend, the girlfriend usually dumps them once they're oh, yeah. out of the band. It's it, without fail. Yeah. It's so, it's so, uh, it bums me out so much when I see that happen because they sacrifice their one real opportunity for something that 99 out of 100 times will be over within three months. Because I think that it's not because their girlfriend only wanted them because they're in the band, but I think because uh, that confidence that they had from doing what they actually love went away. And now they're what? Delivering pizza or doing, which I've seen many times and they get depressed and they get dumped. So (laughs) word of warning to people listening, uh, don't ever leave a band over a girl, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and look, in all honesty, if that if it's a real relationship, she should want you to be successful on on both sides. So, well, I think it also goes down to the idea that uh, if you're going to have a relationship while you're in a band, really, this applies for entrepreneurs or anybody who does something that requires crazy amount of hours and like a different kind of lifestyle. You have to be with somebody that that gets it or. It's probably not going to work. You know, on the other end, it's incredibly difficult for women who are in metal bands too, because I can imagine. You know, just the discrimination, number one, and you know, you and it's just it's a hard thing to to be in that world. So, and again, they have to have uh, a partner that's uh, that's supportive of them and understanding of, of all the stuff that happens too. So it's it's it goes both ways for sure. Oh, I know exactly how jealous guys can be of. Uh, their girlfriends that are in bands. I've heard all about it. Um, yeah, it's just as bad. The thing is though, I guess the most important thing is to be honest with yourself because sometimes it is true that the, the lifestyle of being in a band or doing something like that just isn't for everybody. So I think also at the same time, maybe, maybe it is a good idea to quit. Have you ever encountered that where you've noticed that someone actually is making the right choice by bowing out and going on to a better thing? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a tough one. But yeah, I mean, we've had guys in bands that have gone on to be doctors and lawyers and successful business people and stuff. So so sure, I mean, you know, but they all loved their time doing it. And just for them, maybe the timing wasn't right and, and they had another opportunity. So you, you see that. And look, my attitude is always like, if you, I mean, you have to do what makes you happy. So if, if that's going to make you happy, then, then by all means, uh, go for it. But, but you also want to make sure that like, like we talked earlier that you, that if you are going to make that, that move that you're really fine with, with leaving this, this away. It's not just a frivolous, uh, a frivolous move to do something. But yeah, you know, like I said, if you have a real opportunity to do it, go do it. It counts those people and a couple of big realtors and a lot of, a lot of people that used to be in bands are, are doing uh, good stuff out there. Yeah. That's my story too. Uh, stopping being in a band was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> it could be that way. It was for real. So zero regrets about that. Okay. So speaking of quitting, this is something I think about a lot. I've always thought that just as important as it is to stick things through, even when it gets hard, it's just as important to know when when to quit something because there are some there are some ventures that are just doomed to fail. Like for instance, I started a beard oil company for metalheads and everything was awesome about it. The product was great, my partners were great, the branding was great, marketing was great, everything was great, except metalheads were not into it. And so it didn't matter how good it was. It's just, interestingly enough, just not the right crowd. And I would have, on paper, I thought it would have been. Whereas with URM, there was always momentum from the beginning, like the five and a half years we've been around, the whole thing, I mean, it's been the hardest work I've ever done, but the whole thing has just been momentum from beginning till now. And so I know what it's like with my band too, where you try really, really hard, but just the stars aren't aligning and it is what it is. So with that in mind, when do you know when it's time to call it quits with a band, for instance, a band that you really love, for instance? I think it's, it's pretty easy. I think if, if you start going backwards uh, in terms of, you know, album sales or concert tickets or any of that sort of stuff, that's when you have to start taking a look at things and, and see where things are going. Now, I've also seen situations where, uh, we put out a record by a band that really liked that didn't do as well out of the box as we thought it was going to do, but the band was still doing well, and we just we uh, tell them you know just be patient, uh, and, and that's worked out out pretty well. I remember um, one time we had a band that put out a record that uh, the last record did really well, and this one didn't do as well. It was a, a variety of, of things that happened, and they were on the road with uh, they were on one of the festival tours, and, uh, and every time I die I was out there, and Andy Williams from. Every time I die, he was one of the best people on the planet, was talking to them, and they were really bummed out. He said, what are you guys bummed out about? He said, well, you know, well, you didn't do as well as you thought we were doing. He said, well, you are, you're going to go out and play in front of, you know, a thousand people right now. Until you, like, go to a room and nobody shows up, then be thankful that people are here to watch you and, and things will work out. And I think that was a huge help for their confidence. Even, 
you know, we were trying to tell him to calm down, but just a fellow musician that said that was really good. So, so sometimes you have to, you have to look at that, but in the long run, if things start to, to go the other way on every level, then you have to really take a good look at what's happening and, uh, and make a move there. I think unfortunately a lot of times it, it becomes where somebody involved just isn't into it anymore. The agent, the manager, the, the band members, or, or even the labels. So, and if somebody's not into it, then that's the first sign that you should probably, uh, probably, probably maybe not keep doing it, which sucks. Cause for me, that's horrible. Anytime we have to do that. Cause you know, we love all the bands and label and, and it's a bummer to not be successful because we want everybody to be successful. It's just impossible. There's, there's no way that everybody can be. I know you can't bet a thousand, right? Damn it. No, I, that, that actually, I use that analogy a lot, uh, because I mean, just think about what's considered a great batting average in baseball. It means that you're, you're fucking up seven out of 10 times and then you're considered great. Yeah, I know. Right. Baseball. Well, at least, you know, I will say in music, if things don't work out for bands and, and, you know, we've seen this happen over the years, at least, you know, they put out one or two records that were really good. And they've left the legacy there that they can look back on mm-hmm. and say, hey, I was in this band and we put out a couple of really good records and they stand, especially the way the way things are now with uh, streaming stuff. You know, people can listen to your music at any time very easily. So your legacy really uh, sticks around, which is cool. I think that's a gift that I wish more people uh appreciated because just the fact that you get to do it at all is already nuts. I think, I mean, we're surrounded by people who have done it. I think sometimes I have to remind myself that even though I've been around people who have done it forever now, that's still the minority, like a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. That's super, super rare. Even to just be a band who puts out two records and does some tours is already crazy. Yeah. The percentages are pretty low of that for sure. Unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of, uh, producers, cause you know, our audience is mainly, uh, production people. I'm curious what it is that you're personally looking for when, when finding a producer or a mixer for a band or do you, I mean, I know that, I know that from experience that you do get personally involved with that. I remember you coming to the studio like during Whitechapel and several times when I was in Florida. So whereas I know that some label people swing completely the other way. Like, so I've had experience with like you showing up. I remember Monty showing up when Doth was mixing, but then I remember on the other hand, other label people, all they wanted was the record delivered and that's it. So being that you are on the end of it, of being involved and actually giving a shit, where does picking a producer come into it for you? It's interesting. Uh, and it, you know, it varies on every band. I think it depends on where you want the band to go uh, in terms of what your, what the band's vision is and what your vision is in terms of what direction they want to go into sound wise. Cause you know, there's, Look, in the metal world, there's, I don't know, 30, 40 producers, engineer guys that do most of the work. And same thing with the mixers. Yeah. And a lot of it really depends on, on a couple things. Number one, uh, do you like what, what they're doing? And it, it really, the band's decision is, is the final decision, obviously, because they're the ones that have to do it. They're the ones that have to have the relationship and feel comfortable with whoever they're working with. So, you know, we'll, we'll chime in and, and say like, Hey, I think these three or four guys would, would work for this. Or we think, you know, it, it, like you mentioned Whitechapel, you know, Whitechapel likes to go in different directions sometimes. So we say, well, maybe we want to do, do something a little bit different. And a lot of Mars is probably one of the most interesting bands when it comes to producers. And I, I like their, I like their attitude of things because they don't want to stay with somebody too long because they get too comfortable. They want to be challenged in the studio. So, so you'll see that they move around a lot. They'll use, you know, Jens Bogren for a couple of records and they use Andy Sneap and then they use Jay Rust in the last one. Cause they, they want all, all fucking titans. I know. And all yeah. amazing producers. So it's, it's, it's good. But I think, you know, that's an interesting attitude. And I think that's one of the reasons why they've been so successful is that they, they want to be challenged in the studio. They don't want it to be comfortable. They want, you know, that extra kind of, um, especially of a new voice and a new guy that says, well, maybe try this and you'll get some ideas from that. So it really just, just depends on, on the band. And they, they, I think the biggest thing is they've got to call 
the producer and, and talk with him and vibe with him. Because if you can't vibe with, with the producer, then uh, it's, it's not going to work. And I can tell you, I think, you know, Jason Sukov is the perfect guy for you guys. But if they don't vibe with him, then it's not going to work. Or, you know, you know, pick a name. But then other times, you know, you'll, you'll give, I said, usually we'll give a, a band uh, suggestions of three or four guys that we think might work for them. And then just up to them to reach out and talk to, to the guys and see whoever they feel most comfortable with. And that's generally the way it goes. The only time I really kind of poke my nose in, I, I don't do it too much during the recording process because that's the art of the band and, and I don't really get too much involved in that. But I will poke my head up during the mix just to listen to <laughs> what the mixes sound like, if it's going the right direction, if I think something should change a little bit. But honestly, I, I think I do that a lot less these days because these guys – all of them out there doing such amazing work that it's pretty rare that I'll get something and I'll go, oh, I didn't really like that mix. I, I'd say, I don't know, 95% of all the records I've got in the last five, seven years that, that have been mixed that all, all sound great. And you know, maybe I'll mention a little tweak for something or a little tweak in the, in the mastering. But uh, there's a lot of guys right now doing a lot of stuff at a really high level, which I think is, is definitely helping the metal scene for sure. That actually is one of the reasons that I wanted to start URM and Nail the Mix was because I remember around the year 2010 or something, we were in the middle of the loudness wars and it kind of felt like metal production was starting to get super stale. And I remember that we'd be working on some cool bands sometimes, but that was like 20% of the time. And the other 80% of the time, it was just like the same thing over and over and over and over. And you were starting to get all these records that were sounding identically fake. Uh, and you combine that with an explosion in home studios. So you're just getting this super homogenized sound in metal. And I felt like that was really, really hurting metal uh, because when I got into it, bands sounded unique. And that that's what I got into it for was you could identify, and this isn't like me being like music was better in my day because I think music's awesome now. But I remember that Every band, when I was growing up, they had a signature. And I felt like somewhere around 2010-ish, even though there were some greats, obviously, there were always greats, it kind of started to get a little weird there. And I felt like uh, someone kind of needed to step up and help that next generation of producers like learn how to do it for real because they didn't have the huge studio system to rely on or mentor in. And, uh, you know, pass on the art from the people who do it great. So yeah, I'm happy to hear that you feel that way because I feel that way too. I feel like metal production has gotten incredible over the past five years. It's just getting better and better and better. And I think, you know, you're exactly right on everything you just said. And I think part of the problem, though, I think for the bands too, a lot of the bands like, oh, I love the way this record sounds like I want it to sound like that. And you know, a lot of bands would end up just sounding the same, like you said. And it, it got for a couple of years. It was, and, and we would try. I would try to tell the bands like, don't, like, you need to sound like yourself or or somebody different. Like, if you love Black Dahlia Murder or Lamb of God or whatever it is, that's cool. But don't try to sound like them. And uh, I think now we we've gotten into into a range now where you, you do have a wide range of bands, and, and even the new bands coming up have different sounds and different techniques. And and the, and there's a lot of great guys out there making great music and and, and producing it as well. I think part of it was because uh, nowadays it's common for every band to have one or two quote-unquote producers in the band, right? Like they all have their Pro Tools rigs or whatever, pick your DAW. But that kind of started around 2008, 2009, where it went from, you know, a band going into the studio to do the whole record to just doing drums. Then the band records guitars on their own, comes back for vocals, maybe, and then the mix, and that just started to become more and more and more the norm, as you know. So I think that you started to get a lot of amateurs uh, taking the place of what the pros used to do. And it's just kind of a normal thing that when you're first starting out as something artistic, you're imitating. Is all, all musicians do that. I think all producers do that when they're first coming out. So I think it was, it was kind of a byproduct of the home studio revolution that you just started to get. I mean, you've always had copycats, but now the copycats were getting their shit released all the time because 
they were trying to save money and it just kind of was a thing. Yeah. And I think now people, especially bands and everybody, everybody realizes the importance of a good producer too now. So before I think you're right, they're kind of, kind of trying to cut a little bit and thinking that they knew too much. Now I, I think that they're like, okay, there's a lot of really great guys out there. And we realize that this is an important component to what we're doing. Do you ever get a situation where the band's like, we want to do it ourselves, pocket the money. And you're like, I get it, but not the best idea. Oh yeah. That, that happens. And, and we argue and, uh, you know, sometimes we, we can get them to see our way and sometimes we can't. And it's unfortunate because there's, there's bands out there that I think have, have huge potential to go even further, but they're, they're either, they don't want to spend the money and, or they just want the control of everything and think they can do it themselves. And, you know, it sounds all right, but it's not as good as it could have been. And that, that's, it's not as common as it used to be, but it still does. It still does happen. Am I uh, correct that Igor is self-produced and mixed? Yeah, but that guy. I'm trying to think who mixed that record, though. If somebody else mixed it, but but that guy. I mean, you know, there are, look, there are people that really know what they're that, doing. That's the exception, yeah, <laughs> for sure. The guys like him that that know exactly what they're doing. It's going to be amazing. So it goes both ways. Yeah. Okay. So when you get to know a producer or a mixer, what is it about them? that A, will make you say, I don't want to work with this person again, or B, makes you say, I do want to work with this person again? Pretty rare that we would say we don't want to work with somebody again. I, I think the only the only two things that would happen there, and it's pretty rare that that happens, would be just if they, they the band had a bad experience for some reason with them, but that's super rare. Uh, the only other one would be just that we didn't feel that the, that the sound that we wanted to get did, didn't happen. But for the most part, it's pretty rare. I think one thing I like about a lot of guys that are doing stuff now, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of Jay Russell, who's also a good friend of mine. God, he's so good. What he does that I find really fascinating, because he, he's all over the, the gamut. He, he'll do you know pop stuff. He'll do rock stuff. He'll do metal stuff. He'll do super metal stuff. And it all sounds different. You can't, there's a, there's a certain sound that he gets. But everything sounds different, but but good. And I think that's a big thing where there was a minute or two, like you've mentioned in, in the early 2010s, where everything started to sound the same. Uh, even some producers would, would start to sound a little bit too the same. And with Jay, everything sounds sounds different. I do notice that a lot with a, with the way people are going now, that you, you find that less and less. Like you'll, you'll hear one guy and it'll go, wow, he did those, I didn't know he did that record. It didn't sound like something he did because it was different. Mm -hmm. I had Jay on about a month ago. I love his philosophy. And one thing that I think is interesting, well, not interesting, it's just awesome about him is he knows exactly who he is as a producer. Uh, we were talking about how, you know, if the band wants him to write parts for them, that's not who he is. He's there to make the band sound like the best versions of themselves. And he's super, I think, just as clear as any artist should be about their vision, he's as clear as possible about who he is as a producer, mixer. And uh, I think that that's part of why he's so great. I think he's not he's not trying to do stuff that's not him to do. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, and for whatever reason, you know, his, I mean, not that I was a great producer back in the day, because I certainly wasn't, but I just did, did what I had to do. But I, I do have very um, opinionated about what, what I think sounds good when you get a record back uh, or what I think stuff should sound like. And, and what, everything, every time Jay does something, what he's doing and how he's mixing exactly the way I would like stuff to sound. So, so we're, we're on that same page. And he's also such a good dude. I consider him in like the top three of living current metal mixers. A hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. Like he's, Unbelievable. So I don't want to take up your whole day. I have a few questions from our listeners, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Cool. So this is from Dan Surif, which I'm sure you know. In your opinion, will heavy music ever make a return to the mainstream? And if yes, what would it take for such a massive cultural shift to happen? And if not, what do you believe caused the downfall and cultural uncoolness of heavy music or even rock in general? Well, you know, I, I tend to look at things... Uh, as a, as a pendulum swinging. Cause I've been doing this a long time. And certainly mm -hmm. when in, in the 1980s, when we were all starting out and 
you know, Iron Maiden was starting out. I mean, none of us ever believed in a million years that bands like Maiden and Metallica and stuff would be as massively huge as they are now. And, and metal still is, in terms of like concert tickets, is still either number one or number two in, in the world. So mainstream-wise, in terms of live music, we are way bigger than a lot of the other genres are. But we don't have that mainstream acceptance from the press and the magazines and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that, that we used to have. Uh, do I think that can go back? A- absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's slowly moving in that direction. Like I said, it's, it's a pendulum. And I think a lot of times w- what happens now is it, it's happened over many generations is you're kind of like, I don't want to listen to what my older brother or sister listens to. I want to listen to something different. And you go in a different direction. And we're kind of seeing a little bit of that now where the younger fans, there's a lot more younger fans listening to this music now than, than there has been in the past. So I think that, there, that there's a, a definite possibility as time goes on that, that we can you know, somewhat return to, to the mainstream. But like I said, if you look at concert ticket-wise, number one or number two in the world. So I have a theory about this too. Basically, URM is the biggest online platform for production. And we only do rock and metal pretty much. We rarely go outside of that because that's my world. That's the world we know. And uh, if we were to like start doing hip hop, like I don't know anyone in hip hop. I don't know what's cool in hip hop. Like I like some of it, but that's, you know, this is the world I know. And uh, lots of times people have been like, when are you going to start doing, you know, bigger music? And every time that we've tried, it's been a bomb. We'll have a band like Leprous on and it will annihilate like a country artist that sold 15 million albums. You know, like you get Opeth on and that or Periphery, any of these bands are between the buried and me. And they annihilate when we have more mainstream acts on. Like we had Fall Out Boy on, which I actually love Fall Out Boy, but that was not a very big month. And if you were to go just by mainstream sales, you would say, you got Fallout Boy on, that's going to crush all these little metal acts. And uh, man, Meshuggah, Opeth, Periphery, Gojira, they annihilate the bigger bands for us. The hardcore fans are there, where the mainstream stuff are, are you know, the fans are there, but they're just very, you know, they're into it when, they, when it's convenient for them, I guess. It's a specific kind of audience. And I think if you go, going to Nam is like the perfect, it's like evidence that, this genre of music is a lot bigger than people realize. It's just bigger in a different way. Because if you go to Nam, notice how much of that real estate is taken up by rock and metal mm-hmm. as opposed to other genres of music. It's disproportionate to the, if you were to compare the record sales. Yeah, it's, it's coming back around. I guess for a while, you know, you would go to a guitar center and everybody was in the DJ booth by DJ stuff and not the guitars. And now you're just kind of seeing thing it swing back a little bit hopefully yeah i'm hopeful okay one from scott bennett there have been several major regime changes in the music industry since you started metal blade 38 years ago what has it been like riding those waves and what do you believe gave metal blade its staying power yeah it's interesting i think you have to adapt and we've been pretty good at adapting i learned very early on that uh, if you don't adapt you're not going to be around for too long i was you know i grew up with vinyl i was a big vinyl fan i still have a huge collection of vinyl. And when people started telling me vinyl's going away, you have to stop manufacturing. I'm like, no, that's never going to happen. And we just kept manufacturing vinyl and eventually got it all returned and, and almost bankrupted the company. And the lesson that I learned there was, okay, you need to start adapting and whatever comes our way, we have to adapt to it. And I think we've done that pretty, pretty well over, over the years, whether it's, you know, changing uh, of, changing of, uh, of uh, the types of things that you do to sell the music, you know, whether it's cassettes, CDs, vinyl, everything else, or, you know, the whole file sharing thing or a whole bunch of other stuff. We just have adapted to whatever you can do to, to survive. And, and don't be, not be afraid of that either. I think, you know, people got afraid when something was happening with file sharing, for example, it's like, well, you just, you use that to your advantage and you adapt to, to make things work. Did that scare you when it happened? Uh, a little bit. I mean, it, it was it was interesting, but I understood it. I understood why people were doing it. And in a weird way... Lars was right. Yeah, well, he was right. But in a weird way, it, what it did do, though, was it opened up music to more and more people. Like, more people had access to music than ever before. And that's kind of now, you know, uh, mitigated to where the 
the uh, streaming world is where, you know, for 10 bucks a month, you can listen to anything you want. And, and the access to music that we didn't have before is, is a, been a huge help for us, for sure. From Johan Carlson, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see new and up and coming bands doing, in your opinion? Oh, boy, there's a lot. First of all, getting involved with the wrong people. That, that's number one. Like, like, like the wrong team? Yeah, the wrong team. Like I said before, that, that, that's probably the most significant part of it. Um, also, I, I think that you, you still have to pay your dues. And I think a lot of bands think that it's there's an easy shortcut to being successful. It's like, well, you know, I, I we've seen bands on their first tour go, well, I, I want a tour bus or I want a really nice <laughs> van. It's like, wait, what? Uh, you know, Metallica, Slayer, Exodus, Damagod, Testament, on and on. I mean, those bands' first tours, they're sleeping on people's floors. They, you know, you have to kind of pay your dues. And a lot of bands just think that they're going to put a record out and all of a sudden be super successful. So you have to be... You have to be ready to 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 do this because you love the music and you love what you're doing, not because you think you're going to have easy overnight success. And, and so I think those are the two biggest issues I see with bands these days. And keep your social media going. Yeah, man, the the whole thing about bands getting with fanagers, for instance, is such a... It kills me when I see that because I think to myself, what do you even need a manager for at this point? Yeah, I get it. It's hard. Uh, there's not a lot of good managers out there, but I think that, uh, and the other thing that, that the key for the band members is one guy in the band has to know somebody about business and has to know what's going mm -hmm. on because you have to remember that we all work for the band. Agents, producers, labels, we all work for the band, not the other way around. I think a lot of times people, the bands think that they work for us. We work for them. So it, it's really it's on them to have somebody in the band that, that looks out for their best interests first and don't listen to what everybody else says. People come to me and they're like, what publicist should I hire? And it's like, you haven't done anything. If you don't have a story, you can pay a publicist $5,000 a month. And if you don't have a story, they're going to have nothing to help you with. And it's the same thing with managers and labels. Exactly. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming back on. It's been a pleasure talking to you again and Please stay healthy. Yeah, you do the same. And same thing, everybody out there. Stay healthy and uh, enjoy the music. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun as always. Yeah, maybe we'll hang out before 2022 or something. Yeah, right? Get out of our house. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Oh, you too, man. Take care. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVYURM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.